You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And you may be seated. Kids, you are free to go to the back. You got Mr. Chris back there and Mrs. Jess. They're ready to take you to dive into God's Word as well. Uh, for everyone else, I want to drop a name as we start the message today, and <clears throat> I don't know how many of you guys, how many of you will know this name. If you know this name, we can totally be friends, all right? But uh, does anybody remember the name Vernon Maxwell? Vernon Maxwell. I heard, I see some head nods. Yes, all right. A few of you do know who this is. All right. It's a basketball player from the mid-90s, all right? So I know not many of you probably remember obscure basketball players from the mid-90s. But Vernon Maxwell made the NBA after he carried the Florida Gators to their first ever NCAA championship, oh, NCAA tournament appearance, excuse me. And uh, Vernon Maxwell was a solid player in the NBA for a long time. Never made an all-star team. He was just a solid contributor, pretty, pretty average guy. He averaged like 12 points, two assists, two rebounds a game. But Vernon Maxwell put himself on the map. He... He, he became pretty widely known, not because he was just some amazing player, but because he had this nickname that fit his personality. His nickname was Mad Max, and he had a passionate, ruthless, intense personality, and he was really the epitome of a streaky player. He was the kind of guy who, yeah, I told you, he averaged 12 points a game, right? But he is one of only nine players in NBA history to score 30 points in one quarter. So he's right up there with Bird and Magic and Jordan. Like, he could go off for 50 points one game, and the next three games have seven, eight, and nine points. He was just a very, very streaky guy. And the enigma about Vernon Maxwell was that he was, he was the kind of guy who thought he was way better than he actually was. All right? He just, he just thought he couldn't miss. And so much so that basketball nerds back in the 90s kind of created this new category of player. And they called him an irrational confidence guy. Irrational confidence. You know, it doesn't matter if he missed six shots in a row. He believed that if he got that ball, he was going to fade away and shoot a shot at the buzzer, and it was going in. He believed it was going in. He had irrational confidence. And today in this passage, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to show you, and we're going to see here together this morning, how that you can through Jesus Christ, have irrational confidence. It doesn't matter, spiritually speaking, if you are weak, if you've messed up, if you struggle. Spiritually speaking, you can find the strength to bounce back, to shake off past mistakes, and move forward through Jesus Christ. So the question begs to be asked, would you say that in your faith, you have irrational confidence. You personally. Do you have what I'm beginning to talk about? I realize most of us don't have a lot of confidence in our faith because we're looking at ourselves and we're reminded of our own weaknesses. We stumble and fall and we feel like, I just don't have the confidence to be who God has called me to be. And at the same time, there's people around us who don't know Jesus Christ and they look at us and they just don't even understand who you are and what you're living for. And it's a very confusing thing for them. So today, before you say, you know, David, it's just a miracle I'm here this morning. You, you have no idea how hard my life is right now. 
and I can't quite pull everything together, my, I'm just trying to keep my expectations in check and be realistic, God's word today is going to completely shake that entire misperception. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea either. This, this passage isn't just simply a, everything is awesome and you're amazing. It's not that message either, because we hear that from the world sometimes. Our culture will tell you that you can do it all, and you're powerful, and you're beautiful, and you're just incredible. And that can, can build us up for a little while, you know, for, for a temporary period of time, and then reality hits, and we fall flat on our face. And it doesn't have a lasting impression. So that's not the message here. This passage acknowledges, this passage acknowledges that you, in and of yourself, of what we just talked about and sung about. You are insufficient on your own. But at the same time, this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 acknowledges that through Jesus Christ, you are stronger than you're probably giving yourself credit for as well. There is so much that you can do for God's glory that is beyond your wildest imagination. Our faith isn't just about being realistic and being conservative and, not, and keeping our expectations in check and surviving. It's not it at all. Our faith is so much bigger than that. So as we read the text today, we are going to see three reasons why you can have irrational confidence with your faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to see that through Jesus, your life is more grand and glorious than you probably realize. So turn with me with your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're in this series called Affliction, excuse me, Affection in Affliction. Paul is working through this heartache of a, of a situation with the Corinthian church. They're kind of in a fractured relationship right now. And this is a very personal letter for Paul. But in the midst of this, he is now turning the turning the page from talking about this heartache and hurt, and he is telling the Corinthians something about themselves that they haven't quite grasped. So let's back up from chapter 3 and start reading in chapter 2, verse 14. We were in these verses last week. This was the end of last week, but I think this is going to be great to give us some context. So starting in verse 14 of chapter 2 with me. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned, by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. So Paul is telling this local church that they are the aroma of Christ. And he's using this analogy that we discovered last week, and we talked about last week, a Roman triumph. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime experience where a general, a conquering general, is walking into the city of Rome, and people are yelling, triumph, triumph, triumph. There's this, these, these banners are being waved, there's this, fragrant incense, and, and Paul is comparing our Christian life as followers of Jesus to those people in that spiritual progression of this triumph, and, 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 and our, our life is a picture of representing Jesus Christ. So 
Like you're new to Doxa, I'm I'm really glad you're here for the first time. But we've been talking about all of this as we've gone through this letter. And in the midst of this, so in the midst of all this hard stuff, this heavy stuff that Paul's working through, he starts talking about their commission. Their commission. So what is a commission? Well, you can commission a painter to paint a very specific painting. You can commission a soldier to get out there on the front lines and, and to go into battle in a, in a warfare region. But at the root of all, there's a lot of different commissionings out there. A commission is always passing the responsibility on to someone else. That's what a commission is at its, at its core. Every follower of Jesus Christ has been commissioned. And we at Doxa Church, we communicate it this way. Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Well, that's found in Matthew 28. These are the last words that Jesus left with us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So the Corinthian church, with all of their baggage, with all of their problems, and we've discussed this in the past, we're not going to get into it today, but believe me, the Corinthians had a lot of problems, serious problems, just like you and I. The same problems that we are wrestling with, the Corinthians had this too. They were not like a Sunday school choir. That was not the Corinthian church, all right? But these people were given a commission by God to spread the aroma of Jesus Christ. And to think, I'm not ready for it. I have to clean up my act before I can really do this is a complete hoax from the enemy. So there's the context of where we're at. And now we're going to get into the meat and, meat and bones of all this. Three reasons to have confidence in your commission. Let's finish reading the passage for today. Chapter 3, I'm going to go from verses 1 through 12. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some of you do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you were a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in and ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will be, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're going to end it right there we get into this. 
The first reason to have confidence in your commission is in verses 1 through 3. There is no need for a resume. This is a great job, okay? You don't need a fancy resume required for this job. In these first three verses here, Paul is addressing the fact that the current leaders in the church of Corinth are attacking him, and they are, they are attacking his credentials. These, these new leaders in the Corinthian church had very impressive resumes. They had it all. Um, and they were contrasting that with Paul, and they were trying to make Paul look bad. So you have this new pastor here in Corinth. Oh, wow, look at this guy. You know, he won, he won the debate. He won debate for four years straight at the University of Athens. He's a pretty powerful orator. And oh, wow, look at this pastor over here. He got his, he got his, uh, his military academy. He graduated from the military academy at Sparta. And, and now he has earned two master's degrees from the, from the school of Plato. This guy is really brilliant. Paul, what do you have compared to him? And they're trying to down Paul. Paul, what, what are your credentials again? That's the way this is going. And if you want to like personalize this right now, many of us, even in this room, we can feel the same way about our qualification. We almost have like a imposter syndrome. Like, can I really do this Christian thing? Am I really a follower of Jesus? Can I really pull all this off? I don't feel like I have the heritage or the pedigree of, of somebody else to, to really do something for Jesus. What Paul is saying here is you can forget all of those impressive degrees from the Christian college. You, it doesn't matter if you came from a Christian home or not. Maybe your family is worried about you because now you're taking your faith in Jesus seriously. That's all right. You're in the same place as far as Christ looks at you as every other person in this room who knows Jesus. So what does Paul say to this problem of these leaders attacking his credentials. Verses 1 and 2, again, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Hey, do you really need me to go over this again? Or do we need, as some of you do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So Paul is saying, I don't need any letters of recommendation. The letters of recommendation that I have are you. It's your life. It's the fruit of my ministry. I've loved you. I've invested in you. And the Holy Spirit has changed your life. That's all the resume I need. Need. You don't need to have this resume that's impressive to share the aroma of Jesus Christ. And just think about how empowering this is. If we had to build our own spiritual resume, humanly speaking, we would put in there, you know, the theological degree. We would put in there the spiritual influencers I've hung around with or my heritage. You know, my dad's a pastor and, my, and his dad was a pastor. Oh, wow, good for you. Like, no, no, that's not where Paul goes with this. And the amazing thing is Paul could have actually blown them away with his spiritual resume if he wanted to. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees before he came to Jesus Christ. He had unmatched zeal and passion. Okay? He, he knew all the answers. And Paul didn't know Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ revealed himself, the resurrected Jesus in a vision, and said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is
is not good to kick against the pricks. No one had that on their resume. No one else was blinded because they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ in the sky and turned to him that way. But Paul didn't go there. He didn't pad his stats by showing that. He simply said, you want my letters of recommendation? You are the living letters of recommendation. It's your changed life, the fruit of my ministry, that is my resume. So he doesn't use any of the ammunition he said he could have used, and instead he points them to the Holy Spirit who has changed their lives. So do you see how this is the first reason that you can have irrational confidence? You don't have to have it all lined up and all figured out. There's no resume required. Make your own living letters of recommendation. This could be an older couple who walks alongside a younger couple and speaks wisdom into them and helps them parent a younger child. This could be witnessing and sharing your story of how God has changed you and saved you, leading someone else to, to faith in Jesus Christ. Sharing your testimony in a church setting. You could pray. You can serve. You make your own credentials by loving and serving people. It's really that simple. You can't overcomplicate it. There's no resume required. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. This is true equality. The second reason that we have confidence in our commission is found in verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read those again just so we can keep on track here. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here's the second reason today. There's no mandatory competency. No mandatory competency test going on. And right here in the middle of the reasons why you should have confidence in your commission, we're also given the how. We're given the how. It's, it's through God. And we can't mistake confidence for self-sufficiency because there is no such thing as self-sufficiency in the Christian faith. We're all going to fall short if it's all on to us. You're not self-sufficient. That's the whole point. The confidence here is not rooted in your own skill and your own talent. The confidence is rooted in your own personal inadequacy to the point that you lean on Christ. You see that in the text, verse 5? God uses the weak things in this world to confound the wise. And if you want to turn back to 1 Corinthians, I, I want to read a passage here because he says the same type of thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. This rings true. This is what Paul had told the Corinthians earlier. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And much later in 2 Corinthians, again, back to this original letter that we're in, in, in chapter 12, Paul is going to talk again about this, this same idea. Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 has a thorn in the flesh. We'll talk more about this when we get there later on in this series. But it's a physical ailment that's causing mental anguish. And Paul pleaded with God three different times to take this away. He needed healing from that. But that wasn't God's answer. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a beautiful paradox this is. We are, we are weak. We are insufficient in and of ourselves. But that's where we meet God's sufficiency. And the result is confidence in doing something that's bigger and better than you could have ever dreamed of doing on your own. You have to embrace your personal lack of competency before you can get to the point that you get on your knees and you receive the sufficiency from Christ. I think this is incredible. Do you see what a confidence builder this is right here in our faith? You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to win over every single person with flawless smoothness. God overcomes all of our weaknesses. Thank you, God. As a parent, I fail. As a human, I make bad decisions. We all do. None of us deserve this commissioning, but he's given it to you anyway. Have, have any of you ever felt like just completely unqualified for a job that you have? Just in, in the real world? When I was, uh, I, I certainly have. Um, when, I was, when I was trying to put a ring on Julie's finger, I was, I was getting as many jobs as possible to try to get some money to buy that ring. And there was a period there where I was working at Genesis Marketing, which is not as good of a job as it sounds. It's a pretty bad job. Uh, I was working on the weekend at Starbucks, and I was also painting. You know, I, I had this inkling that this, this girl that I was trying to get engaged to, she was an interior design major, and, and I'm like, you know what, there, there could be some painting in my future. So, so maybe I should learn how to paint a little bit better. And uh, the story goes, like, I needed some more hours because I, I just wanted to get as many hours as possible. And I remember this, this girl that I had dated before, she was always talking about how her dad needed more people to paint. And it was a little awkward because this guy was like a Chicago Bears fan. I'm a Packers fan. I still remember the very first time Aaron Rodgers ever had a start at the preseason game. I was at their house, and, and these Bear fans were like, is this Aaron Rodgers guy going to be any good? So I had this weird relationship with them. But I called him up anyway. He gave me a job. He's like, he's like, wait, do you have any experience? I was like, well, a little bit. I painted a bathroom when I was in junior high at my Christian school. And I painted some barns at the, at, out in the farm I worked at in high school. Like, all right, that's fine. That's good enough. I'll, I'll show you the rest of what you need to know. And he's like, show up to this house at this time. So I get there. Uh, it's this is a really nice house in Greenville. And I'm the first one there. The professional painter and his son, the, the guys who were supposed to teach me what to do, were not there yet. And lo and behold, the homeowner comes out. And he's expecting me to be the professional painter. And I don't want to, like, ruin this. I just, I'm on this new job. So he's asking me all these questions about painting. And I am just pulling things out of thin air. Some things Julie had mentioned about painting, you know, like 
some little, you know, when I painted the barn, what did I, what did I do? Like, I'm just, I'm just, just grasping at straws to not sound like an idiot in this job that I'm not really qualified to do, right? And finally, the, the real painter shows up and I hand him off. Like, oh yeah, talk to him about that. That'll work. So often, though, we can feel like in our Christian life the same way. We're just trying to fake it until we make it. Pretend that I don't have problems. Pretend that I'm past all my weaknesses and I have this whole thing figured out. So many people think of the church and they think of their Christian life as this performance and they have to, they have to fool people into thinking, I'm a good person. That's not the message we see here in Scripture at all. I was nervous back then because I was faking it. Christians, you will be nervous. You will be stressed out if you're faking it. Paul puts to rest this notion that you are sufficient to claim anything is coming from you. Just stop that, okay? There's no mandatory competency. Accept your inefficiency and find sufficiency in Jesus Christ. When your inadequacy is met with God's sufficiency, you not only gain confidence and boldness, but you watch yourself pick up the paintbrush and start painting a masterpiece that you had no, no idea you could even do, right? Like, what is this? Don't, don't keep your expectations low. You can do more than that bathroom in junior high. You can paint more than just a barn. I had never done anything beyond that in my life, but when I started working with this other guy, we painted some really amazing places in downtown Greenville, places that I never thought I would be painting, but here I was, like way out of my league, doing this. God has a master plan for your life, and it involves you doing incredibly unthinkable things for his glory. He, he will equip you and enable you and empower you to do that. So even if you've messed up, even if your life isn't currently where you want it to be, you jump on his shoulders, and he will take you to new heights. And that's exactly where we're going with this third reason for confidence. It's found in verses 7 through 12. There's no limit to success. This is another reason why you can have irrational confidence. There is no limit to the success that you are going to have in a triumphal procession with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul did mention something else in verse 6. He said, confident to be ministers of a new covenant. Did you catch that? What is this whole new covenant thing all about? For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There's a very important theological truth right here that Paul is beginning to dig into. And verses 7 through 12 actually fill this out. So let's read those verses together. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So let's break this down for you, all right? Everything, what did we just see here about the Old and New Covenants? This passage actually revealed a lot. The Old Testament covenant was 
the Old Testament law that was given to Moses, uh, and he gave that to the children of Israel, God's chosen people. The Old, Old Covenant, here it is from the text. The letter kills. That's a description of it. It's the ministry of death. That's what it's called. It was carved in letters on stone. So to give you some context, if you're not super familiar with the story from Exodus, after Moses received the Ten Commandments, he was glowing because he had been so close to the glory of God to the point that people couldn't even really look at him. He had to, like, veil his face. The Old Covenant is also called the Ministry of Condemnation here in 2 Corinthians. And it's when we're told also that it came to an end. So that's the Old Covenant. What does this reveal about the New Covenant? The New Covenant, the Spirit gives life. It's called the Ministry of the Spirit. And it doesn't mention it here in 2 Corinthians, but we're told in Ezekiel chapter 36 that this New Covenant is written on the hearts of every believer. It's called the ministry of righteousness, and it's permanent. It doesn't have an end. It is permanent, and it far exceeds the previous Old Covenant in glory. So the Old Testament law reflected who God is. It revealed truth about God's character. But there was something lacking. There was something that it didn't do. It didn't give you the, the power to obey. It didn't, give you, it didn't give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to carry it out. It offered no help to obey what it was demanding. And I had a conversation with someone just this week. They were dis disillusioned with the faith of Christianity. And to them, it was all about following rules and being perfect. I could never mess up. And they felt shame from the church. It was this heavy weight. If that's the way you feel about your faith, and that's your religion, you are literally still living in the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant reveals that we are sinners, that we fall short of the glory of God. That's the whole purpose of the Old Covenant. It's to reveal our sin. None of us have kept the Ten Commandments. James tells us that you can keep the whole law, and yet if you offend in one point, you are guilty of all. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty harsh. You mess up one time, one slip up, it's over. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The whole point of the law was not to save you. The law cannot save you. The law reveals that you are a sinner who needs to be saved. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And this is where the law, I mean, even though we have these like negative connotations, like it kills the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. Wow, law sounds bad. No, the law is not bad. The law is good because it reveals to us our need for a savior. And the spirit gives life. This new ministry of reconciliation that Jesus Christ ushered in, that's what gives us life. The law shows us what to do. It leaves us dead in our sin because it gives us no power to obey what it commands. I mean, even as Moses was coming down with the law, the children of Israel were breaking it right there, right then and there, right? It, it was something we, we never had a chance to follow it. 
It reveals our brokenness. It highlights our sin. God is perfect. He is sinless. And sin is anything that misses the mark and doesn't match his perfect, holy, righteous standard. We are in desperate need of salvation in and of ourselves. Thanks be to God who sent Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life. And he took our place on the cross. He suffered and died the consequences of our sin. And he could do that because he was the only man who ever lived without sin. The God-man Jesus Christ. This is what the Christian faith is. It's confessing and repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus Christ. By faith looking to Jesus Christ and saying, I am sorry for living my life my way. Will you forgive me? And Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for you, took it upon himself, and then he defeated death and defeated sin by raising to life. There's no limit to God's glory. And all of this now is, you have to understand, all of this really is assumed between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul has already taught all of this, and he's reminding them of this to illustrate this point. There's no limit to God's glory. There's no limit to what God can do. You're not under the law anymore, remember? That's not, that's not our faith. We've advanced beyond that. Don't you dare add to the law. That would be a really bad idea. You're saved by grace through faith. You have now freedom to enter into this relationship with your creator. Look at verse 10 again. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In comparison, the old covenant has nothing on the new covenant. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. To illustrate this point, it's almost impossible. Anything you say here will pale in comparison to the gravity of what we're talking about. The Old Testament law had glory, but what, what once had glory has nothing on the new covenant. The new covenant isn't just a different ball game. It's a completely different league. It's in a league of its own. You are not bound to the sacrificial system anymore. You no longer have to sacrifice a lamb on the altar as a, as a foreshadowing, symbolically. We don't do that anymore because Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. He is the sacrifice for our sin. He did that. He conquered sin, so it has no more hold on you if you, by faith, turn to Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? Since we have such a hope, you can be bold. You can be confident. We're talking irrational confidence that doesn't even make sense, humanly speaking, in this world. Because you have the power of Jesus Christ living inside you. Now, Paul is not quite done with his Moses analogy of the Old Covenant. You know, uh, the law brings death. It doesn't provide the ability to live. It convicts, but it doesn't resolve anything. Paul is going to continue using this analogy, and we're going to talk about it next week, okay? Because it's going to go all the way through the end of chapter 3, all the way into chapter 4. And that's our passage for next week, so please come back. But when you receive Jesus Christ, confess your sin, and turn to him, a spiritual veil is removed from your eyes. That's where this passage is going. It's, it's borrowing from this analogy with Moses. 
but the Holy Spirit is gifted to you at the moment of your conversion. And you see this in, in verses 16 and verse 17. We're going to dive more fully into it next week. But where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Freedom. The law was unable to give us this ability to live. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And through the gift of salvation, you are given the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, you become new. And there is no limit to what you can do. There's no limit to success. Be bold through the Spirit. Worship team, you can come up right here. Humanly speaking, knowing ourselves, this is completely nuts, right? It's irrational to be bold and confident about unlimited success. We all know that we don't have it when we're honest with ourselves. But we're not talking about our old selves anymore. We're talking about being bold and confident through the Holy Spirit that lives inside you. And once you get that, you can be bold, you can be fearless in the face of persecution. Once you realize this, you're not going to be afraid about being different anymore. There's no fear. You should be different. I am different. I have the veil removed from my eyes. I can see and know truth. I can have the power of God to do things that I could have never done before. So of course people who don't know Jesus don't understand me. It's because I'm different. This is the kind of assurance that you and I need. It's hope and boldness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no resume required for this. There's no mandatory competency. And there is no limit on the success. Your sufficiency is in Christ. And he has given you a commission to go out there for the glory of God. Because what we need to do here, when we're, when we're confronted with truth like this, and it's revealed to us, admit that you don't have it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Talk to God through prayer. Ask him to fill you and to empower you. Trust God. Take him at his words. Believe in his bold promises that he gives you. And then act. Step out in obedience. We have to love one another. We have to forgive each other. Share the truth of what Jesus Christ did for you. You're going to be all right. You're going to be more than all right. You're going to be a conqueror. Have confidence in that. I have a friend right now who is who's in a tough, tough spot. They're struggling with something. And I have really felt the leading to say something to him and challenge him. And it's not going to be a fun conversation. It's not going to be an easy conversation. It's not what I want to do. But, but when you feel the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you know it. There's no mistaking it. When you know, you know. And I have this resolute conviction for sure that I need to go to him, ask a few hard questions. Because if I was in that place, I would want somebody to do the same thing for me. Holy Spirit's leading me to do that. What's the Holy Spirit leading you to do that's out of your comfort zone, that's going to require some boldness? Is it to wake up and just quit making excuses for yourself? 
Is it to get over a sin that is dominating you and you want, you want to go to Jesus and get complete victory and conquer that sin? Is it, is it just going to be starting a conversation about Jesus to your neighbor? We have to get bold. We have to get confident. Irrationally, human speaking, because we're not talking humanly speaking anymore. We're talking supernatural power. This is faith. This isn't just meeting expectations and falling in line and, and being a good, normal person. No, none of that. God doesn't give us room for that. He says have boldness. Talk to him about that right now. Would you stand up? We're going to worship our, our sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going we're gonna to look to the cross. This is where we get our power. Talk to Jesus about what you need to do that's different. What you need to do that's bold. And get out there.